This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. Hello, I'm Brian. And we're talking about Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, a 1968 science fiction novel by Philip K. Dick. Uh, the, I, I, I thought I hadn't read the whole book before. Um, I'd read the abridged audiobook when it came out years ago, uh, but I, listening through to the unabridged one, I'm pretty sure I have read it before because um, it was all very familiar and, and just as deep as I remembered. There's an abridged version? Yeah, uh, the, oh. back in the days when audiobooks were abridged. Uh. There was one read by Matthew Modine and uh, Callista Flockhart. And uh, that, that was it's actually quite a good book uh, for two cassettes. It's a surprisingly oh. good adaptation. Yeah, that's really abridged. Jeez. Yeah, like three hours or something. It's very short. Um, not, I'm not quite sure how long it is, actually, as, a, as an unabridged book either. But um, I think it's about nine hours unabridged. Yeah, something so. you know, very reasonable size. Mm. Um, I'm struck. I guess the first time I, I read it, I didn't, I hadn't read uh, all of Philip K. Dick's short stories. I don't think I'd read much. Philip, K., maybe nothing by Philip K. Dick. Maybe a couple short stories at all. But I, I'm struck <laughs> by how he's really just working the same themes. Uh, over and over again, and especially with this one. Did you guys find that? Uh, well, I mean, my this was my introduction to the world of uh, Philip K. Dick. Um, and, you know, I came to it as many 80s kids did on the, black of Bl- on the back of Blade Runner. Mm. And you, you, you see Blade Runner and with the original cut with the voiceover, you know, that was interesting. Beautiful. Will, will, will the book see any light on it? And the book does shed some light in. You go, well, this is sort of the same, but not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the What's... names of the characters are different. There's a whole different emphasis. And um, I remember I enjoyed the book because it was just kind of it was kind of a sci-fi I'd really not kind of really encountered at that point. Um, but it's kind of coming back to it now, having in previous years um, read a lot more Dick and got actually really into where he was coming from and and reading it not without that kind of hey this is like the movie <laughs> kind of head a teenager head on it's kind of oh wow this is does sort of tie in so much to the main thrust of his of all the kind of the ideas and um themes yeah. he explores over a whole series of books and um i think i still think it's actually a very good introductory novel i think of all the ones i've read if has going to introduce a newbie to the world of dick i would start them with this one <laughs> yeah yeah totally i agree this is one of my favorite dick novels i think it's one of his greatest um i i too read it coming off of blade runner um it wasn't the first dick i read the first one i read was um man the high castle and that really did my head in when i was 16 you know the ending was like what 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 <laughs> how can fiction do that but um mm-hmm. but i i thought this blew me away in part it was you know Wait, the world isn't overcrowded? It's the opposite? Whoa, mm-hmm. what's, what's of Mercerism and Buster Friendly? And, um, no, I, I loved it, and uh, I go back to it every few years. I, I taught it a couple of times. Um, I paired it with a, with a movie, and my students hated the movie. They were really <laughs> bummed out by it. But I guess that's another topic. But um, 
but well, I, yeah, um, it 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 it's it, it's so tied up with the movie because it's actually such a good movie compared to most adaptations of almost yeah. any novel. I think it. I I I normally try to shy away from you know talking about movies because this is a book show, but. But I do want to talk a little bit about Blade Runner. But keep going. I, I, yeah, I, your, your students hated Blade Runner, but they loved the novel. Yeah, they really did. And um, in, in part, That's I thought unusual. it was. Really, I thought it was a really um, teachable novel because it's really short. It's it's jam packed with action. I mean, things happen every chapter, and then um, it's also short in terms of time. It's one one day. Rick yeah. Deckard has one long day. Um, but I agree with what you said, Jesse. There's so many Philip K. Dick obsessions with this. You know, we've got androids, obviously, something running through his, all of his work. And we get the, um, we get the uh, games with reality. Uh, one yeah. of my favorite parts in this book is the fake police station. Oh, that's oh, wonderful. That's, it's that's, beautiful. You it's don't... So, so missing from the, from the movie. When you see it in this book, you go, oh, my God. This, right. is, this, is, this? this is the, the center of the book. Yeah, you get this. You get this. Um, he, it, it's one of those classic dick moves of pulling the rug out from under you. You know, you like, wait, how can this be? No, this isn't really. And then on top of it, I keep forgetting how the the androids are really well organized here. You know, they've mm-hmm. got you know, there are many of them. They've got a communication network. I mean, they're really. Uh, in the, well, in that's the, the question. How many? How many androids are there in this book? <laughs> ah, very yeah. hard to answer, right? Yeah, yeah. It begins to it. It begins because this is an American novel. You can't avoid the comparison to slavery, and oh, yeah. the, you get the strong sense that this is more like a subjugated ethnic group or a minority. Sure. You know, not you know, in the movie it's famously what six or seven. You know, um, all isolated. But but here, this really feels you know more like uh, more like something from the 1850s um, in terms of. Uh, you know, I think uh, it even says uh, when they when when they're listening to the off-world uh, advertisements, it says um, re- something like, "You can uh, live out your fantasy of a southern gentleman." Right. On Mars. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, so that is explicitly brutal. telling you what you know. It's slavery, no question. Exactly. But it seems to be legit slavery in the sense that well, they're not people. I mean. Uh, Decker's job is really to hunt down people on the uh, on the on the uh, underground railroad, right? Exactly, exactly. But are they people? And and then you get the the great, the great flip side, you know, which is part of Dick's genius, is to see where people don't act like people. I mean, like mm. doesn't doesn't one human fail the Voight-Kampff test? Um, you know? Yeah. Well. Uh, it's que- uh, there's a question: Is Deckard failing the? Uh, yeah, he, he takes it himself. Yeah, mm. but only one question. Right. And Luba, Luba, I mean, she, I think you know, right before that fake police station, Luba, what, what's her name? Loft. Last name. Loft. Loft. Yeah. Right. So slick air is her name. <laughs> she's yeah. got slick slick air. Um, she she's um, she's the only android who. Definitely knows she's an android and tricking, I think. And she is trying to do what Philip K. Dick did. You know, one of the things I, I just read a Philip K. Dick biography, and one of the things that he was really interested in was these uh, psychological tests because he, he would go to psychologists a lot because he had a lot of uh, uh, 
uh, fears. He had he was like afraid of going outside, and he was afraid of driving sometimes, and yeah. um, and so he got really good at knowing what the right answers to all the questions were. And Luba, she's she's jamming the questions, right? She's she's pretending she doesn't know uh, vocabulary words so that right it interrupts the flow and. Uh, and then right when it's starting to get dangerous, she accuses him of being a sex pervert. But because <laughs> the questions are so uh, of that kind, you know, they're food and animals and sex, <laughs> um, it, it's legit, right? She's right. He is a sex pervert. It, it's Because he does end up having true. sex with Rachel, right? He does. Um, <laughs> she, she's, not, she's left out of the movie entirely. Yeah. Um, well, she becomes and a snake lady in the movie. That's right. She's Zora, mm. who oh, is, right. uh, you know, turned from a she. In here, she's a classic, uh, classical opera singer, right? Another obsession of Dick's is opera. Um, and in the movie, of course, she turned into an exotic dancer. Um, but that visual, the visual thing that is happening on the movie is such a compliment to this very talky book it is mostly people having conversations or having taking tests it really it really is i mean i was gonna i was gonna link this actually to uh, ancillary justice um oh yeah you know, there's a whole there's a, i think there's a whole strand of american science fiction which is really uh dialogue driven uh asimov does this for example sure uh, you know and uh heinlein as well right yes especially later heinlein oh god it's yeah. too many, too many people sitting around uh, rooms naked talking. That's right. <laughs> talking about Lazarus Longcock or whatever. It is. You know, I mean, yeah. um, no, I, uh, God, there's so many great things in this book. Um, I mean, it's just, it, you know, some of some of his novels feel rushed um, or unedited, um, and some of them feel like the idea falls flat halfway through. But this is one which is just. It, it's it's so splendid. I mean, there's everything from the framing, the bracket of the novel, the bookends of the novel, with the, with the um, mood organ, which is just brilliant by itself. You know, it's like a stand-up routine. What is um, God, what it's is it? Penfield wrong? mood organ. Penfield yes. mood, mood organ. And Penfield, of course, is uh, as Eric pointed out that that was the guy who was doing the uh, in Toronto was like a doctor who was doing. Uh, open brain surgery and you know little making mm-hmm. little connections to people's uh, brains and having them smell toast and and re- recall memories from childhood maybe that aren't real right michael creighton did a, a book about this not soon after this came out called oh. the, ter- the terminal man oh yes yes i've read that tur- one mm. it got turned into a really dull movie um, <laughs> but it was it was the idea that they you know you uh, they open up a guy's brain and they start you know poking at it in order to get him to um feel, experience different things, and um, that's what the, the title is actually a good title. It's a good pun. They kind of turn into a terminal. Uh-huh. But, but when I, when I, um, one of the fun things about having students encounter this is they're like, wow, the mood organ, what a crazy idea. And then you point out, okay, well, the last page, um, Iran sits down and makes herself a cup of hot coffee. Mm-hmm. Like, so, you know, how many of you guys... Um, do medicate yourselves for your feelings and your and your thoughts, and they're like, "Oh God, I guess we do." Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> and maybe maybe the desire to watch TV, regardless of what is on, <laughs> or uh, a lot of people have that programmed in. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm. You're 
Right. Um, I, I, I I had something strange happen to me. Jenny, uh, you know, Jenny Colvin, our Reading Envy podcaster, she, um, she, she said she remembered how funny this book was. And I was thinking, it's so serious. There's no humor at all. And then I was thinking, well, she said, she said, uh, Jesse, there's a sheep on the roof. And I was like, <laughs> that's not funny. Oh, wait, I guess it's sort of funny-ish, you know, sort of strange. But I, I didn't strike me until I started thinking about it. I guess the, that opening scene where she says, um, yes, I, I've, I've I planned a uh, six-hour self-accusatory depression. depression. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that is <laughs> that is sort of the height of existential humor of a certain kind. <laughs> Yeah, also um, satire. I mean, Dick was, was yeah. he was writing lots of novels um, poking fun at American life. And that's his mainstream fiction. That's where partly where that comes from. Um, and he often, I mean, a lot of the um, a lot of the stories turn on this. Like, uh, oh, what's the novel about the um, the guy who is um, uh, living in an artificial world created just for him because he's picking out um, oh, rockets? Uh, time out of joint. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crackle gum. I love. Oh yes, <laughs> I love that. I just want a great mm. idea for. Um, but you know, that's the part of the fun of the book is that the whole <laughs> artificial world is fake and not really believable, and it is the real world. You know, it's what it's what Dick is living in. You know, and, and here having these guys compete furiously about what quality of animal they have. <laughs> they're carrying along with them. They're uh, what's the guide called? The uh, the the blue book or whatever. They all have that rated without right. Sydney's Sydney's catalog, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, uh, it's like you know, keeping up with the Joneses, you know. On even though you're living in this post-nuclear hellhole where the Earth is over, I mean, it's not World War Four; it's World War Last, World War mm-hmm. Terminal, right? Yeah, yeah. And we've we've ended the world, and they're still competing with. Oh, maybe I get a toad. No, I get a sheep. Oh, I mean, it's. It's, you look not, you look like a goat man to me. I'd like to elevate you to the goat class. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There was uh, um, in from I don't get the dates wrong. Like 1900, 1930, there was actually a a weird medical trade in the U.S. of goat glands, where you would um, you would get them uh, injected or implanted into you in order to make you more vigorous. <laughs> um, and uh, they, these were boosted by pirate radio signals. Uh, where you had these crazy quack doctors be talking about men bring back your virility with goat glands. That actually shows up in a uh, Buster Keaton movie uh, where the main character goes and you know visits a goat doctor to get rejuvenated. But no, I, I, I think I don't think this is it's it's this is this is satire. It's it's the kind of humor that you smile at and you reflect on. It's mm-hmm. not it's not slapstick. You know, it's not no, like, not not slapstick. But um, going back to that Sydney's catalog, I, I think that that was the point where I was listening to the book the second time. Or I, there's also a really good two-hour audio drama of it from BBC just came out this year, um, and that one synthesizes uh, some of the things from the movie, um, but keeps a lot of the things from the from the book. And then it drops the wife um, completely, changes. For some reason, it changes Isidore's job, uh, which I think is, is that makes it a very classic Dick. You've got these two sort of uh, parallel characters who eventually intersect somehow. Um, they pass pass each other in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But uh, that Sydney's catalog, when when he shows up in Seattle and he's wait he's waiting to see or they're just about to see the owl, he sees they've got the latest Sydney's catalog that is actually out earlier than it should be, and he's you know there's got to be a federal law right. against this, so he confiscates it right for his own personal use. Um, yeah. And I was realizing everything in this book is undercut. Every possible truth is undercut. So he thinks that at first that it's a fake catalog. Uh, no, he doesn't think at first it's a fake. He thinks it's a real catalog and then it was delivered early. They defend it and say, no, we didn't ask for it. So uh, he says, well, I'm confiscating it. But then they use that catalog to to try and help sell him on the uh, on the bribe of the of the owl, right? And every every time we think we have a truth coming out, um, it's undercut somehow. So that's I think that's the really great difference between the movie and the the book is that you know other than the fact that Mercerism is sort of just just the shell of it's there for all all the animal questions uh, when. When I first watched Blade Runner, I said, uh, wow, these questions are really provocative. But I didn't recognize that they're all about the animals in the, in the questions. You know, like the bearskin rug question. Mm. Like, are you mm. testing if I'm a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? I was like, uh, yeah, I think that's what the question was about. I didn't even see, the, see that the bearskin rug was the question. It seems like it's more like a test. Are, are you a member of the Mercerism faith? Because everybody is so focused on the animals in the book that isn't a, a, a replica or a android. And that, that's a, a, entirely striking to me that um, what's missing from the movie is, is the religion that is so centrally, obviously, like a sort oh, of yeah. um, St. Francis of Assisi version of, of Jesus, um, it's, they've even got they've got stigmata, right? They've got um, the the Golgotha. It's 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 like a modern thing. And then there's the debunking that's so so striking. Every time something is set up to be this is what we think, it's undercut. And in the movie, when you we get a character like uh, Rachel, we're thinking she's human at first, and then uh, we find out oh she's an android. Um, well, what about, uh, the, there's no, there's no thinking that, like, that regular people are androids too, where it's at the end of, do androids dream of electric sheep? I got the feeling that everything on the earth was already either electrical or biomechanical or, you know, artificial and and then i know that it can't it also can be not read that way that only some of them are that toad out in the middle of nowhere it it's from mercer and mercer loves the mercer says i'm not real in the book right he says what they're saying about me is all true that i'm a liar and i'm really just an actor well you can and yet you can tell sorry Oh, I was going to say, you have so many great things that, um, what you just said. I mean, one is, his name is a giveaway. It's like in um, oh, yeah. the, Shemali, the M. Night Shyamalan movie uh, about superheroes, um, Unbreakable, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, Mr. Glass's name is Mercer. Um, and it makes you, you know, think, oh, buying and selling. 
um, right. and, and commerce, which is funny because Buster Friendly is all about consumerism. Um, but Mercer just has that lurking beneath um, in this in this key way. No, I, I this is you're absolutely right. I, I th- in, in a sense, you think of a bounty hunter story is really about violence. You know, like a, a movie like Django. It's it's about mm-hmm. you know you find your target and you take care of them and that's it. But this is really a detective story. Um, you know, it's and the movie plays up with it. The movie really emphasizes the the film noir, um, private dick aspect. Um, and here, it's constantly trying to unpeel the layers, trying to figure out what is really going on, who is behind what. You know, this this has a lot more in common with um, classic American detective stories. You know, like uh, Glass Key or mm-hmm. Blood Harvest. Um, well, you, you reminded me. You're talking about the animal bits in the in the. For me, the brilliant and and painful scene where Rachel seduces Deckard, she actually brings that up. She says, "I love you." Rachel said, "If I entered a room and found it a sofa covered with your hide, I'd no. score very <laughs> high in the Voight-Kampff test." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh wow! Talk dirty to me, baby. I mean, that's really uh, this. Oh, you go back to something uh, about this being dialogue-driven, and about this being about fake realities, about mystery. Is the um, the opening chapter puts us off, uh, puts us on our guard that this is going to be about manipulation. This is going to be about about profound, and deep manipulation. The kind that's unsettling and can't be that we embrace and can't ultimately be understood, and that's that follows throughout. I mean, even if you remove these this first and last chapter, you get, that's what a lot of the dialogue is about: trying to convince someone to do something, trying to persuade something to do something, and we can't ever really figure out what it is until maybe the end. There's there's a, also a, a perhaps first time it's ever happened. I'm not sure. There's a. Uh, comic book adaptation of the novel that is 24 uh, issues long. It, it takes the entire text of the book, which makes it rather drawn out as a comic. Uh, pun intended, I guess. Well, actually, it was <laughs> It is definitely drawn out in, in the book. Um, it, it doesn't move at a, at a sufficient clip for my comic book reading taste, but I, I did look through it, and I read all, all, the, all the essays in the back, uh, that they, they put a ton of essays in the back of the issues. Um, most of them dealt with the movie rather than the, the novel itself, and most of them I thought were not particularly good or deep um, compared to what the thoughts that I was thinking uh, about about the uh, about the book. But one of the things that struck me that in in looking at the pictures is that. The, the world didn't look like it did in my head. And I know that not much is actually described in the book about what the world actually looks like. Um, and it doesn't look exactly like, you know, the movie version either. But I, I just didn't see enough Kipple <laughs> in the pages. <laughs> right. There's a lot of gray Kipple in, in, uh, in, in my mind's eye. And, and then there was a very striking scene that I think they screwed up on. And I think they screwed up on it because um, you have to make it by seeing it or drawing it out, you actually have to collapse the waveform. And that's the scene where uh, I want to say J.F. Sebastian, but it's J.R. Isidore has, has just um, communed with Mercer after uh, finding out that Mercer's fake on television or 
possibly fake. And then uh, he's he's snatched up the um, the spider they were trying to kill. Well, torture to death, or just torture, I guess, or maybe they weren't trying to torture. Just experiment on like little children, which I, I think is also something I want to go back to. But the he's he's taken the spider, um, and he's also taken the spider from Mercer when he goes into uh, quote unquote the tomb world which mm-hmm. is also going back to um, very much uh, another, I think, very, perhaps my favorite Philip K. Dick novel, which is Gal- Galactic Pot Healer. Huh. That whole tomb world is in there as the underwater of that alien planet. The tomb world yeah. is, is yeah. a place where everything is dead and also comes back to life in the same way that Jesus comes back to life when he walks out of that tomb. Um, but in the in the comic book version, they show the spider again on the on the grass after he takes it out and puts it on the grass, and Deckard comes up, and it only has four legs. And in my head, it had eight legs again, just like just like it had been healed. Well, I think the text does say the because he. He has this. You can feel the spider in his hand. It's been re, it's been renewed. It's got legs right. black. It does explicitly say, say that, and it's kind of and it's a neat it's a neat touch in the comet. But at the same time, yeah. it is kind of it's undercutting one of the interesting things in the book. You kind of Mercer is this fake god, but at the same time, it seems bizarrely real. Oh yeah, it, it, I mean, uh, it, it, he's he's got a story, um, not too dissimilar from Jesus's in the sense that, you know, he's got, he's got a, a happy childhood, right? We get a bit of Mercer's backstory and then his parents uh, make him undergo uh, radiation to reduce his, his very uh, science, science fiction, sort of uh, reason for being able to heal animals. He's got like a, a nodule or something growing in his brain that allows him to rejuvenate animals. And then um, he's, he's stoned to death or, nailed up on a cross it's not entirely clear but um that that scene later on when he meets deckard deckard as far as i'm aware is not touching any of the uh, empathy bu- handles you know he's he's just sort of uh. he's really encountering it isn't he well this is it i mean it might be in deckard's head but it's kind of um, his hallucination, if if that's what this the vision of Mercer is, is exactly right. It tells him Prissy's creeping up behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, or is it Rachel? Right. When we first meet Pris, she she she's pretending. Well, she she's she's talking to Isidore. She she says, "I'm I'm Rachel Rosen." She mm-hmm. doesn't say, "I'm uh, Pris." She says, "I'm Rachel Rosen." And then she changes her story. Um, she's. She looks exactly. They're identical models, if that if that is mm-hmm. right. They're not in the movie. <laughs> no, um, that's an issue when uh, um, after they sleep together, where Deckard is like, "Ah, oh, I can't kill her because you know." That's she looks right. Like, yeah, and 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 that's the other thing is is uh, although I love the movie and it's 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 a wonderful adaptation, literally, you know, changing lots of stuff. One of the things that's fundamentally different and and kind of disappointing in the same way that I I thought I thought I knew where the man in the high castle was going when he starts reading that book the, mm-hmm. the grasshopper lies mm. at the eye I think yep. it's going to be about our world 
but it's not. But no, and it's about another world, a third. It's a, a very similar world to theirs, except they won. You know, it's another. It's a fiction book in a fictional world, but it's a. It's so he's he's very good at making you expect something and then dissatisfied, but also in a good way because in in this case, it's exactly the same way. We've got an expectation of. Uh, so, 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 for example, in the movie, they you can see what they were missing, uh, movie-wise, is that, what are the androids doing here? They're not escaping to slavery, right? And I thought, well, maybe maybe I remembered it wrong in the book. That uh, I didn't remember that they only had a four-year lifespan in the book, but it actually is in there. Um, yep. and, and, and so the, the drive in the book is completely different from the drive in the movie. The drive in the movie is very, um, these guys have a goal, they have a plan, and they're going to try and achieve that goal, and if they can't, then they will wreak, wreak their vengeance upon their, uh, their their maker in a very Frankensteinian sort of retelling. Absolutely. Very much um, so, yeah. Whereas in the book, the, uh, the motivator behind everything is actually Rosen himself, right? He... He is making. He he says, we we hear that they're sending out rumors that the laws are going to be repealed and the androids are going to be allowed everywhere, um, and that's not true. But he's trying to push it, and he's trying to push the line so that every every uh, Nexus Six will be um, in, un, indistinguishable from regular people. And that motivation for coming to Earth has nothing to do with with uh, trying to get more life, fucker. It's actually they're just trying to live. They're just trying to like live without being slaves. And yet they are sort of monsters too. Because and I was thinking, well, what's missing from this book is is children, right? right. But these are only four year old monsters, right? They're <laughs> The, well, the reason like, she's like cut Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein's monster is only a couple of months yeah, that's, old. Well, that's that's right. I mean, when when Pris starts cutting off the legs of the spider, uh -huh. um, Isidore is you know he he can't speak, which is for a book with you know this dialogue driven. You you know how profoundly painful it is for him. Yeah. And and you know when when Batty says maybe this is the last spider. And they keep cutting, right? They keep cutting off those legs, and then he says, "I can motivate it," and he gets the, he motivated to walk. The match. He gets the. Oh, it's like a it's like a child torturing, you know, an ant or something. It's entirely what a sort of a monstrous little child would do until they hopefully learn some empathy, right? <laughs> but that's that's one of the nice things about the book is that the androids really are in that weird liminal stage where they are human and not human. You know, when, mm -hmm. uh, when Deckard says, all right, I'm going to kill you, this to Rachel. And she's like, oh, all right. And yeah. he's disgusted. Because yeah, they just, give up too easily. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's what happened at the end. The, the end of the book is a weird kind of letdown because, you know, it's, it's going to be this giant bloodbath and he just kind of, you know, kills one pretty quickly. It's, yeah. it's, um, so, I mean, Deckard does a great job of making them human and not yet human. They're, uh, what, um, the critic uh, Chris Deva calls abject. You know, they're uh -huh. like they're like vampires or like uh, or like Frankenstein's monster. You know, they're they're human but not. They're close but not. 
And there are all these little touches which show them to be, you know, not quite human. But and then, but the genius of Dick is that you flip this around and you say, well, all right, where are the humans not quite human? <laughs> I mean, that's his ultimate charge to us, I think, as readers, uh, is is trying to figure out what is it that makes us mm-hmm. actually human. Where the yeah, other this day. is a it's right in the title. This is a book of questions, not answers, right? It's, yeah. it's got a question mark at the end. They don't put that in the credit sequence of Blade Runner. There's no question mark. It's just, do androids stream of electric sheep? Not, do androids but stream of electric yeah. sheep? But that's what makes the director's cut the true great movie, because it that's ends right. with the question mark. It ends with the door closing on uh, Rachel and Deckard, and Rachel asking, what's going to happen? Are you going to kill me? What's going to happen? The door closes and the credits come down, and it throws that's it to you. Exactly. I've got to say, though, for titles... I mean, there are a lot of titles that Dick considered for this, and my favorite one, because it's so terrible, is uh, "The Killers Are Among Us." Cried Rick Deckard to the special man. That is exactly <laughs> a sort of Philip K. Dick title, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's like "Flow My Tears." Yes. Said. Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of wish he'd use that just because it's so terrible. You know, it's, it's just so insane. Yeah. Oh boy, that you know, one one other character who's missing from the book. Uh, 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 sorry, from the movie who I think also helps us understand the difference between the movie and the the book in, in regard to the androids. When I watch Blade Runner, I empathize with all the androids. I Even Roy Batty, who is a, a stone killer, right? He, he right. kills poor uh, J.F. Sebastian. Um, you can see it. It's coming, even if we don't actually... See yeah. it in the you know the director's cut. It's not there in the director's cut. We know he's going to murder him, and when he's going down in the elevator, J.F. Sebastian's nowhere to be seen, right? Right. Well, and, uh, in in the they're they're monsters, but they're also they're desperate monsters in search of uh, redemption, and their evil plans are mostly evil to the humans who are oppressors. So I sympathize a lot with them in the in the. In the movie, um, you know, great acting might have something to do with it. Uh, but in the book, uh, there's a character uh, called Phil Resch. Ah, yeah. the bounty hunter, yes. He's the, yeah. he's the bounty hunter from the fake police station who turns out to be human, but uh, has some empathy problems, right? That's what I'm thinking. Um, and... And the thing is, is that actually is, if you look at the names, that is actually what the center of what the android, when Dick talks about an android, he doesn't mean like a robot uh, replicant like he, like you see in the movie. What he's actually talking about is sort of the, um, the kind of person you are when you're a uh, unsympathetic, I guess yeah. unempathetic. Right. And so yeah. we get these two characters, one's named Rick Deckard. Right. Rick, almost like Dick. Mm-hmm. And um, then we've got Phil, which is obviously Phil. And he's put himself mm-hmm. in his novels many times. And Resch is German for crusty. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, um, then what do, what do they do? And they're doing the exact same job. They hunt androids. They use slightly different versions of an empathy test. Oh, no. One uses an empathy test. One uses a, like a... A reflex. Uh, re- Final reflex yeah, a reflex test, test mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and w- one of their bosses uh, is an android, uh, or both of their bosses are an android. And the scene 
for me that is this you know it's that same shocking scene you see in in uh, in the uh, man in the high castle is when is when he's at Luba Luft's dressing room. The cop, the the beat cop comes um, to arrest Deckard, and he says, "I'm going to call my boss. Um, you can talk to him." So he calls his boss, wakes him up, right, and says, "You got to talk to this cop." And the cop picks up the phone, and he's not there. And then he's like, "What the hell?" Right? He calls back, and it just rings and rings, right? Yeah. That that it's like that. Brilliant. The entire script has been flipped, right? So that. Uh, Phil Resch turns out to be human when we expect him to be an android. And every time we expect something to happen, it turns out the opposite way. Except when it's, it doesn't, when it's all being predicted. So one of the most shocking things to me when I went and read the beginning again was, um, I thought, oh, it can't be exactly as I remember. And it was exactly as I remembered. Uh, I want to say Phil Dick. Uh, Rick Deckard predicts everything that happens in the plot right at the beginning. He says, um, <laughs> "I have a. I want to get a a real animal, but I would need uh, six thousand dollars to do it. Right? I would need to have six uh, six androids come from Mars in order for me to get enough money to get a good animal. And then and he says." <laughs> ah, but it's not. It doesn't even end there. He says. But also, uh, thinking it through, he says, um, Holden would have to also be out of the picture. Otherwise, he would get all those. Um, he would be assigned to them. And then, um, I mm-hmm. also, if I could do that, it would be a record, right? Nobody would have done that many. Bing, bing, bing. And, and it goes, yeah, exactly. It's it's like dream logic, right? You predict something happens, and it happens, and then. That's- that's funny, predict something that, happens and the opposite happens, right? But well, it's always tied in. That's another theme that uh, Dick works on in quite a few other books and stories, the uh, precognition. You know, in yeah. fact, he, uh, um, uh, Ubik, maybe my favorite one of his novels, I mean, is all about precogs gone wrong. Um, so there's a sense of, uh, of trying, you know, of, of prediction, predestination, mm-hmm. and trying to avoid it, which is, you know, if you want, you know, classic American lit problem, given that, you know, American lit starts with the Puritans who are all about predestination. Right. Or you could think about uh, that horrific, beautiful uh, series of scenes in Dune Messiah, when uh, Paul Maudib becomes blind and yet has total predictive powers over the right. future. You can see everything. Um, it's interesting, I mean, because all the prediction here usually doesn't work, but Deckard somehow has that insight. Well, Resh does say that um, he mentions kind of the, the almost like you know psionic ability you uh, develop as a bounty hunter to stay alive. Right. And, yeah, and it's all it's also it's um, everything Deckard doing being predicted. It's sort of echoed in like Total Recall uh-huh. with uh-huh. Um, the fact you, you can choose memories, this fake yep. implanted fake memories and this you can have this you know what kind of scenario do you want for your holiday you know where you're a super right. turn out you're a spy you have a hot wife and you save a planet and that's exactly and, what happens, what happens. And, and in the same way it's it's it, it's it's that same overturning of the 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 keeping up with the joneses because well maybe you can't afford a real mercedes but you can have a fake mercedes 
right? Or in this case, you can't afford a real vacation, but you can have a, a fake vacation, and yours can be even better than their real vacation, right? That everything being, uh, you know, having a, a, a fake sheep and empathizing with a fake thing so that you can keep up with the people who are really empathizing with their real animals, but maybe none of those animals on that roof are real. So you get an endless loop of simulacra. Yeah. I, like, it, uh, it, I'm reading a, uh, I was reading a book this week for unrelated topic, but um, it just struck me. Uh, the title is very apt. It's called The Ecology of Commerce. It's an old, old mm-hmm. 90s uh, book about how the, you know, pollution is destroying the world and how we have to internalize the costs of manufacturing so that we don't pollute everything. But uh, it, in the end of the book, there's almost like this hope, sort of a bizarre, twisted hope, when she she calls up the um, when uh, what's what's his wife's name? I can't remember. She's got a funny first name. Iran or Iran? Iran, right? Iran. Mm-hmm. She calls up the animal uh, pet store for some fake flies, right? <laughs> for her <laughs> fake toad, <laughs> and the it's almost like the ecology of Earth is going to be entirely fixed but in a mechanical, electrical way, right? It'll be replaced. Have, have, have you guys read um, that awesome little Delaney novel, The Einstein Intersection? No. No, no. Oh, well, shoot. I don't want to ruin it for you. I, I think it's it's one of his best. It's really short. It's like 110 pages, and it's it's mad brilliant. But, oh, cool. Oh, funny that, but what's the, uh, which is the dick novel where they have a uh, drug which lets you translate your consciousness into little toys like Barbie dolls. Chew Z is the name of the drug. What's that? Uh, The Days of Perky Pat? Chew Z. It's in um, Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Right. Um, Another Messiah figure novel, right? Oh, yeah. It's a theme that comes up again and again. I did that for Halloween once. I came as Palmer Eldritch. I had the... uh, (laughs) And and about 10% of the people... Recognize it, right? Oh my God, we're in a simulation! Get out! Get out! You know. But, it, but it's it's um, you know, it's, literate audience. Well, I hire weird people, but it's um, it's it's I think it's an evolution in Dick's writing because if you go to his stuff in the fifties, a lot of it is kind of, for lack of a, a better phrase, kind of pro small business. Um, there's almost mm, yeah. a Heinleinian sense of the. The entrepreneur, the engineer, is a, a cool person who can help solve things. Like, um, I mean, Eye in the Sky, I think, ends with uh, a successful start of a small business, and, and that's all good. But by the 60s, he, he, he turns on this, and he becomes really terrified of consumerism, and that becomes a, a nightmarish thing. And I think you nailed it, uh, Jesse, you know, this kind of procession, to, to use uh, Beaujard's term, there's a procession of simulacra where the earth is wiped out, but we're going to be rebuilding this complete ecosystem of, of simulation and robots. Um, and that's, he, that's he a, was not, he was not always, uh, you know, entirely in favor of like, he had an ambivalent relationship with, with, uh, with consumerism. There's a great short story, sadly not public domain, uh, called nanny. And it's about these robot nannies that come into your house. Uh, you buy them and, um, they take care of your children during the day, but at night they go out in the backyards and they fight. <laughs> <laughs> they go out in the backyards and they destroy themselves, you know, fighting against each other. And the purpose is uh, so that they, because they're made so well, they need to be 
um, unmade so that you have to buy new ones. And and because <laughs> right and because the the um, the programming is they get better and better. They get more and more destructive, right? More and more they're they're hardened steel shells and they've got blades and cutting tools. It's like um, it's a combination. Yeah, it's a great story. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of of the the fear of you know having your nanny take care of your child and also you know cut your child all up, and also having this you Plan know competing with the Joneses next door. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it, he he does that a lot. Another story that uh, reminds me of of this one is not one of my favorites. Also turned into a, a Dick movie. Um, called the Adjustment Bureau. Um, there's a little bit of that in the scene mm-hmm. with Isidore uh, when he is experiencing... Uh, I, I, in the book, it's not entirely clear that he grabs the handles at first, that he's uh, doing his empathy box. As far as I can tell, it, it feels like he, he's just suddenly in that world. And then later we, we learn he lets go of the handles, so he was in that world with Mercer. But... When he's in that world, the walls of the apartment, the, the legs of the chair, all sort of turn gray and disintegrate. Right. And, and what's so strange is that the, the androids are seeing it. They're seeing, what is he doing? He's wrecking the place, right? The, that same thing happens in Adjustment Bureau. Like the, 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 the veil of reality, I know this is the dick theme that comes up again and again can just be if you just look in the right way if you just turn the corner in a certain mm. angle you'll see the the gray dust of reality fall away and something will be revealed usually a two yeah. world that also has renewal or, or, but, some, or something is a complete fake it's like in time after right. he joined to unraggle gummy uh, he has a moment at a i think it's a drinks machine and for a moment uh, it vanishes, and there's just a piece of paper that says "drinks machine," yeah. and then it snaps back. And then he, and then he takes, the, but then he takes that paper and he mm. takes it back to his house. And the, in his closet is a hidden box. And in the box, there's a whole string mm. of pieces of paper with words like, you know, newspaper boy and you know, car. Sure, it's just brilliant. But it goes right back to his very first short story called "Rug," yep. in which there's a, a dog. It's either sees garbage men or aliens, or something else. But it's all it's all tied together. Um, one of the other things I rewatched Blade Runner. I watched the director's cut. Um, I don't know. I doubt you guys saw my tweet for it because I didn't tweet it at you. But it was. It, it struck me why it's such a great movie. Is it might it might all even be accidents. I don't think it's all accidents. I think somebody probably did something right. <laughs> You know, in more than just lighting, there's a scene where uh, Isidore, uh, Sebastian in the movie, is, he says, uh, he realizes that they're androids. He says, you're so perfect. Um, I yeah. helped design you. There's some of me in you. Yeah. And uh, Pris and Batty, minus the wife, right? The Pris and Batty are a couple in the in the. Uh, in the uh, in the movie, but in the book, uh, there's the wife, and the and the wife, you know, is completely excised. But anyways, the the scene there in the movie, they're sitting in a in a black egg chair. It's mm-hmm. half an egg, and 
he says, there's some of me in you. And then the cuckoo clock that we had seen earlier in the film in his apartment goes off. And it goes, cuckoo, 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 six times. Six. For the six, mm, for the six, six cuckoo egged mm. uh, children, right? And it's like, that's that's from a, a Dick story. There's a, a uh-huh. Philip K. Dick yeah. story with a cuckoo clock representing yes. a child that's going to, you know, be raised by a parent who's, it's so, I mean, that's why egg. that movie's so great, is it's layered and layered and layered, and half that stuff could just be, you know, unconscious by whoever's putting it together, and half of it could be, uh, I don't know, it's just so, it, it, you, you you can totally get a different experience of a similar sort of it's a it's one of my favorite movies and oh, me too. this is not one of my favorite books but it's such a good book i think um so much of the movie's brilliance uh is based on its extensive production and design Absolutely. Uh, i mean you feel that world is real yeah yeah i mean it's really um well to pick up a far lesser movie um minority report um i mean one of the Minority Report had a huge impact on on our lives because of the design. You know, it's right. the way it visualized data. We we now we're about halfway there. Um, the way it visualized um, short form radio communications, um, the plot. Yeah, forget it. But the, the design is is huge. And I, I think mm-hmm. Blade Runner, um, everything from like the the Mayan like temple uh, aspect mm-hmm. to the uh, to the gorgeous interior of the Rosencorp. Um, I'm sorry, the uh, Terrell Corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you know, if you want to go further back, I mean, there's a, a great 1794 novel by William Godwin um, called Caleb Williams, which is uh, about doppelgangers and doubles and injustice. It's arguably cool. one of the first detective novels, and um, the uh, the bad guy is called Terrell. Ah, so I often wonder what a long distance hail that would be. But um, no, I I I think. I think this is actually um, a great novel. This, this has so it manages to move in so many unexpected directions. I mean, you think uh, how can you go from post-apocalypse to consumerism? You know, how can you go from TV to androids um, this smoothly? I mean, it's it's really just I think extraordinary. Um, and the more I look at it, I think the better it gets. Yeah, in the in the lay like the depth of the world, thinking about it, like one of the things that's been making me think. Well, wait a second, does this make sense? So remember that J uh, J R Isidore has a television that only gets one channel. His television only gets um, the the government channel. It was taken over in the war or whatever, and it has never been reverted. But the only thing he ever watches on it, other than the commercials is the one show that's on 46 hours a day. Um, it does audio and video. To, he's got a radio broadcast, and he's got a television broadcast. Um, and on that government channel is uh, the conspiracy revealed, right? The Mercerism's a fraud. Yeah. What the hell's going on? <laughs> like, is the, gov- is the government keeping... Is, is the government make Mercerism... Is like is is Rosen controlling the government? Like I almost I almost thought like maybe there is no off world. 
<laughs> we never go there, right? There, maybe there is no off-world. We, uh, given the, the every everything is undercut, it might be like you know, get on the on the train to the concentration camp where you're going to be executed and turn into Soylent Green. We we have no idea what's going on, really. True. In True. those like, how could the government be wanted, wanting to undercut its own sales message? Well, this brings back to another classic Dick theme, which is paranoia, right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's funny. I mean, he's always, always deeply suspicious of governments. I mean, almost every story. I mean, there's this heartbreaking late short story of his called The Exit Door Leads In, Mm. uh, which uh, I I think it's just one of his best stories ever, which, which turns on how to get somebody to believe deeply in a government and, um, what happens as a result. Uh, and you know, it appears over and over again, you know, from, you know, man, the high castle to, um, uh, the way that moguls like Palmer Eldritch or, or in this case, um, Rosen can suborn governments and bend them for their own ends. I mean, if you, you know, you, you guys know his biography, you know, this becomes a, a huge deal in his life as he gets more, yep. and more paranoid and it, you know, starting with, being part of the drug culture in the Bay Area and, and, and as necessity being against the government and then his deep paranoia um, everywhere from his conviction that Stanislaw Lem was a, what was it? KGB I mean, it's spies, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it really ultimately climaxing perhaps with his with his God visions. I mean, and yet, and yet, you know, like he's, he's in this, he's almost creating like he he could have gone the evil route, you know. He could have gone like Elron Hubbard route, and because he's so much about putting the religion at the forefront, and the the Mercerism religion is, I mean, it's even though it's got this, you know, it's fake. It doesn't matter in the same way that you know, it doesn't matter if Jesus actually existed because his teachings are very, you know, good teachings, right? Um, it's it's good to turn the other cheek. It's good to love thy neighbor. Those are really good things. And 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 when he is doing his own spiritual, you know, trying to figure out reality, um, sometimes he thinks he's you know being. He, at one point, he thought uh, his own soul was being taken over by a, a, a bishop friend of his. Um, Mm-hmm. He, he he's almost like the, it's a, the opposite of the cynical sort of I can make I can make a religion make money for me I'll show you how I may not be a great SF writer but I can make you know I can make money from this but he could never um, make a ch- he could never make a church he's a gnostic absolutely I mean, a, you know he he believes and which is why in this book we have these direct experiences of the divine this, you know is it right. hands off Perhaps Deckard has uh, an inkling of this when he um, predicts the future about what can happen. Um, I mean, he's such a great anti-authoritarian, uh, anti-authority person. I mean, that's why Deckard is is barely an authority figure, constantly in trouble, constantly trying to leave and stop doing it. Um, I mean, it's if this is in the Reformation sense, he's an Anabaptist. In the mm-hmm. medieval sense, he's a, a Gnostic. Um, he's got to be a heretic. Um, which is yeah, and that and that uh, so again and again you have rebellion that appears you know throughout you know, all of his stories, and authority is usually both terrifying and or a joke. 
um, at the same time. Well, let me guess. Oh, sorry. Oh, I, I wanted to come back to the animals again. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about the the cat. Um, yeah. That remember that Isidore picks up a cat, and it turns out to be a real cat. One of those scenes <laughs> where you expect one thing and it turns out the other way. Um, that that phone conversation, or, or yeah, the phone conversation with the wife that Isidore has to do the this you know being all stressed out and not being not going to get fired over the fact that he can't communicate over the vid phone. Um, that that's very much a Philip K. Dick thing, but the that scene is almost entirely replicated at the end with with the wife of of uh, Deckard oh, calling in sure. for the toad. Right? It's like <laughs> you get those, some fake flies for the right, you know get a real cat, and then when he says when uh, when he talks to the wife, uh, Isidore talks to the wife. He says. Um, we could get you a fake cat. And she says, yeah, well, my husband loves this cat so much, um, he would die without it. It would destroy him, right, not to have the real cat. So it has to look perfect. And then what happens? Well, if we go back and see what Isidore actually talked to the guy, the guy didn't seem to care at all. He's like, i got to get to work. Right? And Deckard's the same way. Like, Deckard's got this toad, and he's like, well, I guess we should deal with this, Right. And the wife is, no, it's the most important thing in the world that my husband have this. He, he loves this toad. It's like, wow, that is so weird. It really is. I mean, animals become this kind of, this, this nexus, you'll forgive the pun, of uh, empathy, of mm-hmm. epistemology, um, and, uh, and of time. I remember the book begins with this uh, parable about an ancient turtle that dies. Right. And, you know, we're, we're just kind of... A tortoise. You know, this, a tortoise. This, <laughs> it, it occurs to me, you're correct, it, it occurs to me this might, um, we could see this book as being part of the great wave of environmental thinking in the 60s. Absolutely. It, it's, it's a Rachel Carson book, right? It's, right. It's like five years after Silent Spring. And, yeah, uh, 1968. Uh, a couple of years after this comes uh, John Brunner's unbelievably terrifying dystopia, um, Sheep Look Up. Mm. Um, I still haven't finished it because I just get so sad reading it. Um, it's so good. I mean, um, but you know, in the '60s we have so many environmental, uh, ecological dystopias um, that this really feels like that in a sense. Maybe I kind of I wish Eric were here in part because mm. uh, um, I mean he and I have argued about this before. I mean he's very passionate about being a vegetarian. Right. And, That's and, the thing. Everybody in this book is a veggie, right? There's no, there's no people. They can't eat meat because, because there's no there animals. No, there's right. no animals. And and they and they're they're so far past it that when they, when they see animals, they don't think, oh man, time for a good That's sandwich. Right. It's the most horrific thing ever to to eat an animal. Well, well a, even just a leather wallet is horrendous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any sort of animal thing made out of animal skin. Never mind eating animal. You it's, know. it's funny. The skeleton, the skeleton of that is all still in the movie, right? So we've got all these animals. We've got all these scenes where the, there's people, you know, like those those Voight Kampf questions are the same questions from in the book, and they all have the same animal theme in them. But it's never spo- like it's almost like the filmmakers didn't didn't care that that that. The, the bearskin rug was the focus of that question, right? <laughs> it, it's like, 
it's it's completely excised. In fact, I think Deckard's eating a fish or something in one scene, right? Yeah. yeah. It, 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 the the fact that animals are like that that owl is in there. It's almost like that's just the bones of the of the original story. But seeing yeah. it in the film, you say, "Wow, that's that that all the little touches that are in the book, like that that whole talk about we're, we're going to give you this owl, but we need to keep its babies, all that stuff." It's just sort of glanced over in a like a brushstroke of is your owl real? No, it's artificial. Of course it is, <laughs> right? Well, it's like wow. This brings, you, this brings you back to Frankenstein because the monster is a vegetarian. It's an important. Right. He never eats meat. He lives on nuts and berries, and um, and you know the 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 whole family. Well, Percy and Mary and, and to an extent Byron, they were they kept experimenting with vegetarianism. They were interested in it as a political movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shelley just managed, he just wanted to piss off everybody, you know, <laughs> anarchist, atheist, free love guy, vegetarian, just, you know, just had, everyone had to hate him. And, <laughs> um, and that, you know, it, it's, it, and again, like, you know, like Frankenstein's monster, all these, all these androids are only a couple of years old. Um, no, I, I think, I think animals are so, uh, so vital for this. You know, as, as we're talking, one of my cats just walked over to me and plopped himself down on my desk so I could pet him. You know, just which is a nice little bit of coincidence. Absolutely. Well, so I think the thing in the uh, in this book is kind of the uh, it's the lack of the animals and the fact that animals are status symbol. That having a pet is as Im- now more important than having the latest TV or the latest car. Um, and the fact you have a whole religion built on sort of empathy, and this is sort of the thing with the. Whereas, whereas in the movie, the replicants, I say, they have a goal, they want more life, they want revenge on their creators if they can't get it. Um, in the book, you kind of think, it's not as clear-cut. They just seem to be escaping slavery, they're hiding out. They want to live. Yeah, and that's fine. Until you get to the end, where they'll just casually just, say, just torture a spider. And it's at that point, you see how dangerous the Nexus 6 are. Mm-hmm. They can pass for human, but they have no empathy whatsoever. And it just kind of but the idea like of the children, android. Don't you, don't oh, you think that that's like how little kids are, right? They just they don't empathize with other little kids until they. I mean, some do, but mostly they have to sort of be taught. You know, hey, you know, would you like it if that happened to you? You wouldn't like that, would you? And the kid says, no, right. And then hopefully you do that a few times, and then the kid <laughs> stops being mean to the other kid. But it's also part of uh, dehumanization that you see in um, in the military and in religions. Mm-hmm. When you when you have to other the um, mm. the, the others so that they aren't fully human and it's okay to kill them, I mean and, and religions have been doing this for millennia. You know, it's 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 vital. You know, go back to um, you know, go back to Tanakh to the great passage in um, uh, not Genesis. It's in uh, I think one Kings where um, the Israeli peop- the Israeli king fails to totally commit genocide and is punished. Uh, because he hasn't right. wiped out the animals as well as the humans of one of one tribe. I mean, you have to have that kind of dehumanization. And if this is '68 in the Bay Area, you're thinking about Vietnam and mm. about a huge number of Americans who have been serving in Southeast Asia, uh, who've gone through military training designed to increase your empathy for your fellow soldiers, but uh, but remove that empathy for the enemy. I mean, it's it's quite a, and plus, I mean, there's another great period thing. This is a great Cold War story, you know, where it's nuclear war. Isn't the Soviet Union still around? 
Yeah, Soviet Union's still around, and that that cop. Uh, there, there's that scene again with the Polakov, right? Polakov, right? Polakov. What's so funny is Deckard and him are sitting in the car, right? And and Deckard says, "You're not Lub- Lubotkin or whatever it is." And he says, "You mean Polakov?" <laughs> he gets it wrong. Deckard Deckard right. confuses the two names, right? And and the android corrects him. Yep. And it's like, what was that? A faint? No, that was an like the character got it wrong because it, everything's reversed, right? Every every time you think something's going on, it's reversed. And the and like, what's that android doing there? Trying to, you know, it's like he's he's almost like parodying the man, right? Mm. He's a he's a the inverted version of Deckard, right? He's go he goes around. Um, Russia or Soviet Union um, killing androids, but actually he's an android himself, and he's not really even that guy because Aeroflot never comes early. Right? That's right. See, now I want to think about what would be the Soviet ideological position on androids. How does dialectical materialism give us a point of view on the Nexus Six? Then, <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's radically changed because Buster Friendly is still uh, is apparently popular in, in the Soviet Union as well, which mm. uh, oh, that, uh, makes me that think. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The other question is Buster Friendly being infiltrated by replicants? I think he is a rep. I think we're supposed to think he is a replicant. Roy Batty yeah. says things as well. We've always known. We've been waiting for him to right to tell the world this, and um, it's kind of it does seem to be kind of a. You know, Batty has a thing that the androids can't have empathy. Uh, and I love the that his name fusion. is Batty too, right? Yeah. <laughs> he, he's crazy, right? <laughs> it's funny whenever I I read the passages with him. On the one hand, I, I in the visual for me is Rush Limbaugh, but uh-huh. but but also I'm reminded of uh, oh I can't think of how this works. It's in Fahrenheit 451. The fireman's wife oh, right. okay. is obsessed mm-hmm. with her the giant wall screen TV friends. <laughs> That's right. Of the was it um so the, the big show is like the Happy Clown Show, isn't it? Of, um, I think so. The family, yeah. And uh, she wants the fourth wall installed for the complete televisual immersion. Yep. Yep. We're almost like, there. Well, it's it's like the it's like the the classic um, story. Ah, uh, oh, what's it called? The one about the uh, virtual reality room where the two kids. The belt. The belt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's. Uh, it, it's That's funny. another one with a lack of empathy with the with the kids, right? Mm. I wonder if you could do a history of science fiction, both British and American, looking at it um, as a response to TV, you know, from Absolutely. say 1950 to uh, maybe the present, just the various ways that it envisions response to television. You can go even earlier than that. You can go to 1984, right? Yep, because 1984 comes out 49. It's got the te- it's the television watches you, right? It watches you and you watch it. That's right. That's right. E.M. Foster's the machine stops for a uh... right. Well, Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, that's more about podcasting, I think. <laughs> it really is. Uh, you guys, I did a show on that, and it's about mm. a lady who has to hurry up right. and do her lecture on Australian uh, symphony music from you know some very narrow thing and. And she has to say, "Gotta go, son," because uh, my show's on. <laughs> you know that's, and she's stuck in her little room communicating with people around the world via Skype. It's, Until it stops. It, it is. It's or, about uh, podcasting. <laughs> or, um, or Metropolis, which uh, the movie, which has uh, 
uh, quality of, of big screen video conferencing that we still haven't achieved yet. Uh, I, I don't remember anything in Wii about television, but it feels like it's in there, you know. Um, I, I think that that would be a really good mm. anthology or collection or something. And the other yeah. one that you'd have to do is very, very precise to watch it now is um, Nigel Neal's TV play, Year of the Sex Olympics. Oh. I have. Uh, which, which, predicts, which predicts the rise of like Big Brother style TV. Does it hold up now, do you think? Oh, oh definitely. I mean,. I mean, it goes, you know, he predicts the rise of Big Brother TV, but it then uh-huh. sort of goes on to predict the horror fiction that will be inspired by Big Brother TV in the fact that oh. to boost the ratings, they introduce a psychopath into the house who will kill right. the house mix right. for the ratings. Well, this, this is Nigel Neal, after all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's brilliant. really... Just, I mean, I saw it sort of years and years ago on some... Uh, um, Rerun. I thought, oh, that was really, that was really interesting. It wasn't kind of gripping. Like a lot of nineteen, it's very talky. It's about the ideas, and that's that's all good and it's good and dramatic. Um, but when I saw it a few years kind of later, sort of post the rise of Big Brother, Pop Idol, American Idol, all that kind of thing, you watch and you know, go, oh my god, this guy, <laughs> really far sighted. You know, because he worked in TV for years, and he obviously. Yeah. You know, years on the sex, it just draw heavily on that kind of the executive culture of, you know, they don't care about the content. It is it's getting those viewing figures and keeping the audience well, hooked at all costs. And- going to television, uh, I mean, if you if you guys remember, there was a an American show that was pretty great too. Uh, was Max Headroom mm, surprisingly yep. good yeah. about television for a show based on a fake pop, uh, pop literally pop icon. What was the uh, uh, for Coca Cola or Pepsi or whatever it was? What was its um, tag? Five minutes into the future. That's right. right five yes, minutes yeah, into the future, yeah, yeah. and well, it was, was its plots show. are exactly <laughs> about five minutes into the future from us. It's great. Well, I'd go back to okay. Nigel Neal because I just I just love the guy. Uh, <laughs> sure. He did so many great things, and one of his uh, under un- criminally underappreciated uh, Stone Tape. Mm. Oh yeah, we I did a show on that. Uh, yep, uh, I liked it a lot with you, right? Uh, I don't remember if I if I was well, on it. Maybe not. Um. <laughs> it, was, it, it took it took me two years to score a copy. Uh, I I was trying to find because it, it wasn't unavailable in the U.S. at all, and so I st- I took to BitTorrent to find it, and there were like two torrent seeds on the planet that had it, and they were like a dial-up speed. So here I am, like slowly, slowly accumulating this. And by the time I get it, I finally get it complete, and I watch it. Ah, oh, this is great! Like a month it later, DVD. Yeah, I did a show, maybe it was with you, maybe not, uh, about it and its relationship to The Red Room by H.G. Wells, which is a ghost story. Um, yes. Uh, in which the room is haunted, but not by right. Right. Not by anything in particular. <laughs> right, by fear itself. <laughs> right, by fear itself, that's right. It's, it's, it's like in the walls, right? Yeah, well, which is which is what the stone tape is about—the haunted uh, buildings—and I think Neil really foresaw how we would um, come up with uh, ways of haunting new media, which we've been Absolutely. doing steadily. That's what that was exactly. Good connection. You're bringing it all back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I um, you know, there's um, we see TV appearance style, like in uh, I mentioned Brenner's Sheep Look Up. In that and in San Zanzibar, he manages to create this kind of like almost like a channel surfing style 
where you get to rapidly page or rapidly click through all these different screens one after the other. Now he was trying to imitate John Dos Passos, who in the 30s and 40s was trying to imitate you know radio and and ticker tapes and stuff, and I think it really worked. Um, now and 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 for Dick, well, it's especially amazing to think that Dick is doing this when TV had what? Let's see, in 68, Jim in, in the UK would have what? Three channels at that point? Uh, it's 68, yeah, there'd be three. Yeah, and in the US, mm. you know, five big ones, and that's pretty much all you could see. Um, so to have Isidore sitting there with one channel, and it's a government channel, it's not too far off, uh, especially if this is a post nuclear, you know, death world. But even then, we still have TV. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.